morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 3. We're engaged in a sermon series going verse by verse through this book. And today we're going to further that journey. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. This is God's word. May we hear it. And receive it as such. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Please pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we do so loving you. Devoted to you. Father, as we gather here this morning, we delight in singing songs to you, in giving our prayers to you. What a joy, what an honor, what an amazing thing it is that you who created all things welcome us into your very courtroom the halls of heaven. So Father, come and meet with us this morning. Come and give me words that I might speak. Come that we might see you in your glory, in your goodness, in your power and wisdom. Come and meet with us that you would give us ears that we could hear your voice. Come and meet with us that you could settle our hearts or stir our hearts to live in love as you do. Say that often, Lord, that we would live, that we would love as you do. But Father, it is only because of Christ that we might have a glimpse of an understanding of what that means. Come and enrich your people, we ask, in Jesus' name, and all God's people agree. We are, of course, here to study, in this time, the book of Galatians, the Magna Carta of freedom, the glory of grace written out for us. And we remember the great theme of this epistle. That the gospel is not about what you do for God. The one true gospel is about what God in Christ has done for us. We left off last week in our study examining the law of God as guardian. 
We looked at the reality that the law has several uses. Calvin has identified three primary uses. The first, use of the law to reveal sin. And that's the dominant way that Paul has been speaking thus far in chapter 3. The second use of the law is to restrain evil, societally, personally, and as a deterrent, so that we would know what not to do, what's out of bounds for us. And then the third use of the law is to show believers how to grow in sanctification, how to grow in our faith, because we come as we are. By God's grace, we come as we are. But we do not leave as we were. We become new creations. And so the law's job in this first use of its law is to expose sin for what it really is. It's a violation of God's holy standards. Remember, God never gave us the law to reveal the path to justification. The Lord gave us the law specifically to illuminate the evil power of sin. Listen to Luther as he reflects on this in his commentary. The great Martin Luther writes, Therefore the true function and the chief purpose and prosper excuse me, the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. I don't like that list. Sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and well-deserved wrath? <laughs> Luther does not give us any wiggle room. Maybe Calvin will be kinder. Let's see what he says. He says the law was given in order to make transgression obvious and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. Ouch. So for most of us, we spend our lives, certainly in the formative years, fighting against guilt, denying it, rejecting it. But we know that it taunts us we know that guilt lingers. As we grow, we experience that lingering more and more. And it infuses a corrupting force in our identity. And so Paul explores what it means that the law of God itself is good when we dislike it so much. He offers us 
the true consolation. That when we see our guilt, we see how much we need Jesus. And in that way, the law is a beloved friend. Because the law's bad news prepares us for the good news of Jesus Christ. The law is inferior. We saw that. We saw its inferiority to the promise. The promise first given to Abraham in a formal way. The promise given to Adam and Eve in the moment of their fall. That there was an offspring to come. There is a son of promise who would come. And with him, the nations would be blessed. But the law is inferior because it's limited. It's limited by time. It's limited by function. We spent so much of our time last week looking at those two realities. But in sum, the law leads us to Christ. So we ask, how? How does the law lead us to Christ? It leads us to Christ by revealing sin to us. The law compels us to look for a Savior. A Savior who could be found. We've acknowledged that the law can't justify, but it can drive us. It can lead us. It can instill fervor. And urgency and lead us to long for and delight in that coming Christ who alone justifies us. So the law may be inferior, but it is still purposeful. By pointing out our need for Christ, the law compels us to look for a Savior, and when we believe, at that glorious alpha point of faith, we're united to Christ. And being united to Christ, all of the promised blessings to Abraham are given to us as well. So the law is a guardian, this metaphor that Paul uses, the one of prison and the other as disciplinarian, pedagogue. Both of these metaphors show us our childish and childhood need for real protection and real punishment. So how do we understand this? Well, as we transition, let's sum it up the way John Stott does. God used the law Quote, to shut us up in prison until Christ should set us free. God used the law to put us under tutors, disciplinarians, until Christ should make us sons. And it is this last idea that is the cornerstone of where Paul is headed. This idea that Christ makes us sons. Sonship. We understand leadership and followership. This is just one more boat to ride on. 
sonship, adoption. Listen to the language that Paul uses. I'll start in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Translating from the Greek, it can be difficult at times. But there are some things that are very, very clear, crystal clear. And that is that in verse 26, the word that has the emphasis is the word all. The word all here has the emphasis. So, of course, we're speaking here in verse 26 of the mighty doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Everything is about union with Christ. That's what we mean when we see this phrase, in Christ. Talking about union, the language of uniting. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Now sometimes as we read through the Bible, we can become irksome culturally by the male dominance that we see. Or think we see. So, ladies, if you are in Christ, you are sons of God. Because the inheritance belongs to the Son. And if you are united to the Son, then what is His is yours. Just as all of yours becomes His. Believe me, we're getting the better end of that bargain. But before you worry that this scripture has nothing to say about the feminine glory in the church, remember, fellas, you are the bride of Christ. So if the ladies are sons, then the fellas are brides. All based solely on our union with Christ. And these, of course, this union comes only by faith. And that faith has so many blessings. Consider with me, if you will. The blessings that come by faith thus far in Paul's letter to Galatian, to the Galatian churches. You ready? God's blessings only come by faith, he has taught us. In chapter 2, verse 16, or again in this chapter, verse 6, justification comes by faith. Union with Christ comes by faith. Galatians 2.20. Abraham's blessings, according to chapter 3, verse 9. They 
are blessings that come by faith. And then in verse 14, the third and oft neglected member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, he comes by faith. So when we see this language of in Christ, we are made sons of God through faith, Paul is explicitly using this particular preposition, the preposition in, that we might know that sonship comes by no other means. There's no other road that you could travel whose destination is Christ. All these things come by faith. That means that personal faith in Christ is the cornerstone of what he's discussing. It's not legalism. It's not your work or effort or desire. It is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that saves you from your sin. But it does even more than, I hate this word, just that. We are also saved into God's family. Saved from sin and saved into God's holy and blessed family. This is, of course, the doctrine of adoption. It's fascinating if you study church history as I try to. You will see book after book after book after book written about justification. And you will see book after book after book after book dealing in the arena of sanctification. But the third triplet that comes because of our union with Christ is adoption. Calvin used to call this the twin benefits. Translation is funny because, of course, he knows there are three because he's going to expound the three. So maybe we should call it the triplets. But these twins come at the same time and for the same reason. This is the key. Justification, adoption, and sanctification come solely on the basis of our union with Jesus Christ. Would that more was written of adoption. Our great Westminster divines, Presbyterian history, whoop, whoop, <laughs> record this for us in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 34 asks simply, what is adoption? And their answer is simple, maybe, but it is not simplistic. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. It is an act. Please note the singular. This occurs once in a lifetime 
for the believer. It is an act of God's grace which is freely given, which no obstacle is stronger than. And it is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into. And we, we don't really talk this way that much, but the Westminster divines say the number. We're received into the number, the people, the gathering, the elect, the church, true church, not visible church. And as such, we are adopted into a particular family. And families consist of those who are alive and those who are not alive. My father passed away five or six years ago, but he is no less my father, and I no less his son, because he's not alive. So when we think about the idea here of being received into the number It's a number whose limits God knows, because he set them, and it spans not just a generation, but the generations. When we are given all of the rights and privileges of the sons of God, it is because we Two are united to Christ and in Christ, therefore, united to all the membership, to all the number of God's people. This is what the Apostle John means in the beginning of his gospel, in that prologue. Verse 12 of chapter 1, John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Our culture is prone to say that all people are God's children, but they misunderstand and conflate an important distinction between being God's creature and being his child does not mean that God does not love all. He does love all. He has a special love, an abundance of love. And out of that overflow of joy and abundance, he gives to the undeserving that he has chosen. This, of course, is the great mighty doctrine of election or predestination, but you can see it right here. Those who receive Christ are the ones who become children of God, but no Christian makes themselves a Christian. God alone saves. Faith doesn't save. Christ saves through faith. The object here matters. We've talked about this. But listen to Paul's voice as he carries this idea forward. For in Christ, you are sons of God. In Christ Jesus, you are all 
sons of God. He's putting all in the doctrine of adoption as the same. In fact, all of us become a new singular. Many individuals, one, one offspring by which and whom, to whom which we are united. And that comes by faith. It's the same faith that unites all of us. That's why the emphasis here is on all. But the emphasis must be on all because we are prone to divide. We'll get to more of that in a second. He goes on in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul here is not talking about the water ceremony. He's talking about the thing that the water ceremony is designed to point to. Is a Christian saved by baptism? Please, church, be louder. Is someone saved through water baptism? In the absence of the right of baptism, can any go to heaven? Yes. Be firm here. This is Galatians. This is the gospel. Have this ready in your mind clear. Have this ready in your heart full. Baptism symbolizes something. It's an outward display of an inward and spiritual grace. Baptism symbolizes the believer's union with Christ. Paul here is talking about the inward reality of spiritual cleansing by faith. He's not talking about simply the outward sign of water baptism. Baptism is itself both a sign and a seal. Not a seal like you lick an envelope and it's sealed. Sealed like an official mark that designates where and what something belongs. A sign, of course, in baptism, displays the washing with water, signifying cleansing from sin. The seal is a reference to the official mark that's visibly confirming that we belong to God, again, by faith. The Christian is in Christ. That inward reality of faith creating our union with Christ. I appreciate a very old commentary that says, in other words, verse 27 teaches, ready? The Christian is in Christ, and Christ is in every Christian. Right? It's so simple, and yet 
Profound, I hope, for us. Stirring and renewing us. The Christian is in Christ. And Christ is in the Christian. It is Jesus' spirit who indwells every believer. Listen to Paul as he develops this thought later on, a few years later, in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In Christ, we are given a new identity. Boy, that's the buzzword, isn't it? Virtually everything happening on television or on Twitter, remember, Twitter's not a real place, is about identity these days. Who are you? We often ask that, don't we? Who am I? That's what verses 26, 27, 28, and 29 are driving you to. Who am I? Well, who am I? How do you approach this question? Paul approaches this question by bringing us into the question of identity first through our relationship to God. In relation to God, who are you? Son, adopted son, heir with Christ, according to the promise and blessings. Who are you? First, in relation to God, sons. But what about in relationship to the people around us? Christianity at times can be you know, given a slight demerit because we focus so much, we're said to, on our relationship vertically, us and God, us and God, God and us, which is good. But also the horizontal, us to each other. Calm and still your mind for a moment. We record these. You can come back. If I ask you, who are you? How do you begin to answer that question? Do you think about your family? Your lineage? Your time and history? Do you think about your personality? what you're like, what you do, what you like, hobbies, interests. It's fascinating having raised two daughters. We're most of the way there, right? Yeah. They're pretty great. Some of my favorite humans. I encourage you to meet them. But when they were young, they saw everyone and everything 
through the lens of possession. They didn't know they were doing that. But they would say, this my little pony, and then they would describe. They would look at dolls, Barbies perhaps. They're back in vogue, right? And they would say, this is Hawaii Barbie, Malibu Barbie, right? This is soccer Barbie. This is gymnastics Barbie. Or if you prefer the American dolls. Am I saying that right? And Kitty was from a particular place in a particular time, and you learned about that time through the lens of who she was. Fictional and all. But this translated into their daily lives because they would start to say, oh, well, she is the swimmer in that family. And my friend over here, she's the actor. And and this one, Rebecca, is the crafty one. No, that's her older sister, Abigail. Rebecca is the zany, crazy, wild, colorful, also an artist, but in different ways. True? So does that mean Savannah can't be an artist? When you're seven or 11, or 15, you start to see other people claiming territory. No? Yes? Who are you? Men are a little more sophisticated by the time we grow up. We don't ask who you are. We ask what you do. Right? What do you do? And part of what we're doing is classifying someone, yes? Oh, you're a doctor? Oh, Micah, Micah's a doctor. They go to med school. And slightly below that is a dentist. (laughs) He knows, he's nodding. And lawyers are great, prosecutors are better. A judge to be, yes? Where do you work? NASA. Oh. Shipyard. Oh. (laughs) That is sin. It's sin. It's funny, but it's still sin. Who are you? I'm an admiral. Okay, that means you're greater than? In the church? Oh, you're a pastor. She's on the worship team. He teaches Sunday school. Class, class, class. Pastor's at the bottom, y'all. If we're anywhere scripturally, it's the bottom. We have this new identity. But if we do not seek to understand the default identity our culture pushes us into or our parents oppress us with, perform, perform, perform. Achieve, achieve, achieve. Don't be a person, be a robot. When I say jump, 
you have already been in the air because you saw me walking towards you. There are people who want parenthood to look like that. Paul says all in Christ are sons with Christ, brothers and sisters to Christ. And he describes it in an unusual metaphor for us. Listen to the language here. Once again, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's obviously using the metaphor of clothing. Yes. Put on Christ, let me wrap myself up in the Jesus robe today. Every day. What if I told you, all right, let me give you the joke first. My mom would do this weird thing when I was growing up. She would keep buying me jackets. Did I ever wear a jacket? Skiing, I think, is the only time I was ever glad to wear a jacket. And when I was younger, she would say, because of who she was, put your jacket on. Anybody in here been yelled at, put your jacket on, as you're trying to get out of the house? Yeah, my kids put their hands up very fast. Put a jacket on, put a jacket on, put a jacket on. Okay. And it becomes this last sensible thing. That you do to appease an authority figure. I saw a meme once. You know I love my memes. And it was a picture of a group of teenagers. All shivering in the cold. And all of them with a thought bubble. Nobody's speaking. It's just that thought bubble. I'm so glad my friends don't know that I own a coat. (laughs) Sorry, Ma. Please forgive me. Is that how you put on Christ? The last thing that you do when you're getting ready to go out into the world to appease some authority figure that you don't think You really need that jacket? One of the things that's fascinating to me, this week, for the very first time, I saw that I had been misreading this text. I kept thinking that I was putting on Christ's robe. This picture of this beautiful, sparkling, pure, clean, white vibrant, jewel-encrusted, perhaps, tiny little diamonds, robe that he once wore. Somehow they made an extra model of it, sort of in the same way that the bread got multiplied out. Jesus does his thing, and there's more bread. The bread goes out, yes? doesn't say that we put on Christ's robe, does it? He 
He is the rope. That's what Paul's driving us to. We all have the same jersey. And that jersey is blood-stained and shredded and ripped apart and made new. Raised in newness of life, sparkling jewels and the blood and the tears and the glory and the... I have no idea what this looks like. Not in full. Do you? Help a brother out. We are clothed in Christ. With him as our identity. With his name on the back of the jersey. And I don't mean Team Messiah. I mean Jesus. J-E-S-U-S is the name on the back of the journey that every Christian is given at the alpha point of faith. It's not game worn by Jesus. It's his. No. It's him. And that's why our hostilities towards one another on the horizontal plane are so out of bounds. They're out of bounds because Jesus Christ is the garment that we are given to put on. Jesus Christ is our righteous robe. He's not just the giver of righteous robes. It's him. So bonded are we to him that we wrap ourselves in him until we are conformed to his image in all its complexities and perfections. But Paul then immediately moves into ethnicity and race, social and economic class, sex and gender, Paul takes on in the next verse, pride, greed, and lust. (laughs) Every once in a while when I'm writing a sermon, I give myself the exercise, what is the worst opening line I could use? (laughs) Gotta keep it fresh. Where's the glory and beauty of the gospel? Primes me for my purpose most of the time, but once in a while, what's the worst thing you could say? Try it this week. Look at verse 27 and verse 28 and write the worst possible intro. Pride? Nobody in here has that. Greed? Oh, that's not for Christians. Lust? Oh, none of us have that. Lust for sex, lust for power, pride, greed, and lust. Three chief sins and worldviews. 
Perhaps the culture is right that we talk about this too much. Perhaps what they're feeling is the weight of the law that wants to constrain their evil as a guardian and push them to Christ. But when we read verse 28, we are dealing with race and ethnicity. We are dealing with class structure and economic structure and sex and gender. In dealing with these things, one commentator said, race, rank, sex is all our culture is interested in. I don't know if he's wrong. And that was a few hundred years ago. Lest you think that there are new things under the sun. Listen to verse 28 again. Paul's pushing into the question, how do you define us? How do you define them? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave, that's bondservant, nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the emphasis here is again on the all. Many individuals, one relationship. Because we are all united to that one Christ. But when we hear the nor in verse 28, it might help us if we used the word against. Jew against Greek. Slave against free. Male and female against one another. What's happening here is that Paul is pressing into these three categories. He's showing us the corruption of an identity that is formed and forged primarily and initially or dominantly through the lens of nationalism or ethnicity, tribalism. Remember, when the New Testament says nation, it more often than not means people group, tribe, not country, map, borders, people groups, culture, language, ethnicity. But it also can mean country. But it means that ethnicity and nationalism have been corrupted by pride. Material provision and blessings by greed have been corrupted. Nobody in here struggles with that, right? I bet if you honestly surveyed this room, the vast majority of us would say we are economically pinched way too tight. And kings of old would mock us. Not because we don't work hard for the money we have. I know all of you. There isn't a slacker over the age of 25 in this room. Wink, wink, nod, nod. We have an abundance of wealth by historical measurements, but daily, hourly, weekly, monthly, 
We feel tight and pressed. And that can lead us to the corruption of greed. Corrupting our joy, taking our blessings, giving us an idol instead of a savior. And then, and boy, this is the explosive one, sexuality and gender. Nobody here wants to talk about those things. Every kid in this room is desperate for honest conversations about sex and gender. Every kid in this room is desperate, just boiling under the surface to talk about sex and gender. But those things have been corrupted by lust. Not just sexual lust. Lust is bigger than just sexuality. It often moves into the space of power. And it's prone to oppression and abuse. Pride and abuse of the joy of a people group. Greed and abuse and misunderstanding of material blessings and God's provision. But Jesus Christ overcomes these divisions. Y'all, Jesus Christ overcomes these divisions. That's why verse 28 ends where it does. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Emphasis on all. Hear the adoptive language. Adoption has not only made us sons of God Most High, we have also been made brothers and sisters to one another. But people are divided. Divided in racial and tribal conflict. Pick up a newspaper, turn on your computer for a good reason. Study the conflicts that are presented to you. They deal with racial and tribal conflict. Or perhaps you study the Marxist view of class struggle as a source of conflict throughout the ages. It's not that there isn't a struggle economically or socially. Of course there is. The question is, what's the solution to that? And Marx has nothing to offer you as a solution. Jesus does. And then we see throughout history and time, gender-based oppression. Gender-based, lust-based abuse. Y'all, we did Tamar as a church in 2 Samuel. Do you remember? If you weren't here then, go back and listen. Oppression is real and often violently preserved. But all of these as worldviews should be rejected, primarily because they're too simplistic. It's not that they don't have good commentary on the challenges. It's not that they don't expose these things that are true. It's that they don't know how to assemble them, let alone solve them. They're far too simplistic to be a dominant worldview. I'll give you three scriptures to look at on your own because time. 
Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 17. Here Paul tells us that the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. Division between ethnicities and tribes, countries, nationalities, hobbies, interests. 1 Corinthians 7.22 When we're talking here about the Bible and slavery, be very careful. Be very careful because the Bible empowers slaves more than any other document in human history in the ancient world. And when we read slave, it is almost always bond servant, not violently oppressed people. This is why Paul can't just denounce slavery. You ever wondered why Paul doesn't just denounce all slavery? He denounces man-stealing, kidnapping for sale, he can't denounce bond service because there are people who volunteered into it. Did you know that? People who say, I'm not responsible. I don't know how to run a family. Can I work for you and be in your household? There's no whips and chains. There's no sales. It's not chattel slavery. It's actually mercy. It's affection. That's why sometimes it's even volunteered into. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 22. It's going to deal with slave and free and free and slave. Verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. In other words, in the same way that men become brides and, and daughters become sons, right? So too do freedmen become slaves and slaves become freedmen. Because their relationship to Jesus Christ dominates all other ways and forms of thought when it comes to the arena of identity. And then, of course, Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27 is the reason why this is not presented as men nor women. Did you catch that the nor wasn't there? that the against that I inserted can't work because men and women are taken as one unit bearing the image of God, not the union of one man and one woman bearing the image of God. It's man and woman bearing the image of God. In other words, and this was fascinating to me, up until about 1994, that's my freshman year of college, no one in these commentaries spliced the distinction between sex and gender. Hang on. 
Think about that. Sex and gender, if you're under the age of 35, are virtually independent of one another. I'm not agreeing with that. I'm telling you that's the worldview. That your gender doesn't have to be informed by or connected to your biological sex. And that reproduction isn't necessarily a significant way of understanding who you are. Now, if you're over 50, your head exploded. Your brain's leaking out. Nineteen ninety-four was the last commentary I had available that didn't splice out gender and sex as different. Do you understand how new this is in our culture? How recent? My kid might say, or our kid might say, "Well, that was the last millennium. Welcome to a new millennium." And I'm like, "Well, it's within my lifetime. I don't think it's that far away." I try to echo what others say because it can be more trusted. But this one's mine. And I say that because if it's flawed, please tell me. I don't want to advertise it if it's no good, but this is what I was thinking this week. Intersectionality is a deadly worldview. Of that, I am sure. But as the lens through which you see the world, it's like a kaleidoscope. It turns everything you see into tiny micro divisions. Right? As a lens by which you see the world, it's a kaleidoscope. It turns everything and everyone into tiny micro divisions. This has no place in the church. It has no place in the hearts and minds of a believer. This is a deadly cancer that is corrupting, corroding, and destroying the youth in our world, not just in our homes. Intersectionality is a virus of victimhood. For those of you who don't know what I'm saying, it's this. It's seeing people through the lens of oppression. And it seeks to give the most power to the ones it views as most victimized. In a hopes of counterbalancing. I believe that there are people at the genesis of this movement who really wanted an equal and fair world. Who wanted to lift the downtrodden, bring down the mighty, the prideful, but it seeks to do so by exclusively human means. It is the way you are righteous among your friends. If you are still school age, to stand against this will cost you friendships and family members. But nobody should be reduced to one thing. 
nobody should be seen primarily through the acts and history of others. We are more valuable than that. God has made us greater than that. Reject the simplicity that cannot accurately describe nor solve the situations in our lives, the circumstances in our world, because all it can do is divide and divide and divide, and we all hate fractions. And if you don't go into the STEM field, we need you. It doesn't say men are better than women. That's an intersectionality view. Men are different than women. Can we maintain functional distinction without adding it as a value? Yes, we must do this. Intersectionality is a deadly worldview because all it seeks to do is put walls between all of us in search of our identity, glory in the whole for yourself because of Christ. This is why we can't say that we are a blank Christian. You can't say that. You can't say I'm a gay Christian. You can't say I'm a greedy Christian or a prideful Christian. Go through the Ten Commandments. I'm an idolatrous Christian. Does that mean that I'm a Christian who has no idolatry? Of course that's wrong. Of course that's wrong. I love the way the document our denomination produced a little while ago says. It says we as Christians are to name our particular sins. But never to be named by them. If we are in Christ then that is all. It's all in its power, it's all in its glory, it's all in its unbelievable mercies. The church is not, however, a raceless, classless, androgynous society, which some in the church fight for. Again, if you go back in time, sometimes the commentaries are hilarious. In the 14th century, we are told, quote, we are what we are in Christ. We are what we are in Christ. Meaning, our union with Christ is our identity. But that we are not Buddhists who believe that when we die, we dissolve into a nothingness shared by all that becomes none, like water joining a lake or an ocean. 
We are not raceless, classless, and androgynous. We are united to Christ. But we can be united to Christ from an Asian background. Check out Revelation. The Apostle John goes to heaven and sees with his eyes men and women and children from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. How can he see that with his eyes if there are not elements of these categories that remain? So we as Christians, here's the final thought. Sorry I'm long today, but this is essential stuff. Here's the final thought. What are we to do as Christians? How do we apply what Paul is pushing towards? We are to recognize our diversity. Don't pretend it ain't there. We all know it is. There are people who like the Yankees. And they too can be saved from that hellish pit. (laughs) May I be playful here? I hope. Recognize our diversity, but see it as far less important than our unity in Christ. Just like Jesus does in John 4. Samaritan Woman at the well to make money among the travelers. There's a lot there about race and ethnicity. There's a lot there about class and power. There's a lot there about greed. And there's a lot there about gender and sexuality. But Jesus saves the Samaritan woman at the well the same way he saves anyone from anywhere, clinging to any sin. Come as you are. Leave in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you give us messy time We thank you that you see us in ways that we do not see ourselves. We thank you that the gospel is greater. May no man, woman, or child in this room or any other wonder if the gospel is strong enough to withstand the culture. Instead, O Lord, give us the courage to know for sure that the culture will be transformed. To look more and more like you, until one day we see you face to face. Lord, we thank you that cultural mandates come from you. That commissional mandates come from you. God, we ask that you would free us, our homes, our church family, our community, and the world from the deadly divisions and those who profit from propagating these divisions, demonstrating their corruption and greed. Father, we also pray that you would forgive us. Forgive me. 
Forgive me for the times when I see someone different from me and fail to remember that they are in Adam as I am in Adam. That their humanity and my humanity are the same, even if our affections, our language are different. Father, forgive me for my personal greed. The times where I am jealous of what others have or think I'm entitled to what you have not provided. Forgive me. And Father, forgive me for the hours of lust, lusting for power, lusting for fame, lusting for women. Forgive me for the abuses that I have offered, for the actions that I've taken that remind me and fill me of sin and guilt, shame. Lord, teach me as you teach us to believe the gospel that who we are is found in you. Who we are is answered by being adopted into your family. Oh God, renew my eyes, my ears, and my voice to live and preach that you have overcome all the divisions of men and that in you I have more than all I need. All God's people agree.